0: Welcome back to the New Books Network. I'm Sarah Patterson, one of the hosts here on the Sociology Channel. Today, we're talking with Netta Magbule about her new book, The Limits of Whiteness, Iranian-Americans and Everyday Politics of Race. Welcome to the show, Netta. Hi, Sarah. Thanks for having me. Thanks again for being here with us today. So to get started, please tell us a little bit about yourself.
1: Sure. So I was born in the United States and I grew up there my whole life, but uh, for about the last four years, I've been based in Toronto, Canada. Uh, I am assistant professor in the Department of Sociology at the University of Toronto. Uh, Before that, I got my PhD in Soch at UC Santa Barbara, and I was also a sociology undergraduate major, so I'm just a sociology lifer all
0: the way through. Great, that's awesome. I've gone through from undergrad till now, too, so that's awesome. So first, go ahead and just let us know um, how your book came about. Sure thing. Um, So... Uh, when I was an undergraduate
1: and I took my very first course in the subfield of sociology that we think of as race and ethnicity, uh, my mind was completely blown because uh, taken for granted assumptions I had about things like racial categories were really shattered in that course, which was a class I took with the sociologist, Genetta Condolario. Uh, if folks out there know of her work, uh, she studies Dominican racial identity uh, in a transnational framework. So both looking at the DR. And And also looking uh, at those communities in the United States. So as part of this course, um, she taught us sort of the gamut of race from the rule of hypodescent, right? That sort of... um, Determined the line between white and black uh, for centuries, all the way through the early 1900s in the history of racial prerequisite cases, and this was something I had never heard of before. Right, that uh, up until 1952, immigrants uh, who wanted to become naturalized citizens in some cases had to go to local and federal courts and prove that they were white. And so Janetta shared with us a variety of different cases that featured immigrants from around the world who had come to the U S and the way that judges would have to make a decision about whether or not this immigrant was white or not white. And so for me, it was like explosions just went off in my brain. Um, And it, it made me think more closely about, the categories that particular groups inhabit today and to what extent those are based on historical contingencies. Are they, you know, uh, reflections of the experiences of a group in the present day? Uh, And so that was really the kind of behind the scenes motivation uh, for, for, I think, how this
0: project really initially began. So in the beginning of your book, you really set the reader up with some background knowledge and main concepts and ideas that come throughout your book. And for instance, you start off by telling two different stories, one about Roya, who's applying to college, and then a particular poster in a restaurant. And I really liked how you sort of tied these together to kind of give an overview of your book. Um, And so I was hoping you could uh, sort of set the stage for us here.
1: (laughs) Sure. Um, Yeah, thank you for pointing that out. Uh, So I do use these two vignettes. To, um, to situate the reader into the field. And really what I'm trying to do is to get us into the minds of the young people who are the research participants in my book. So the book more broadly is looking at the experiences of everyday ordinary Iranian-American youth and sort of unpacking the more complicated than sociology has typically acknowledged sorts of racial experiences that they possess. And so immediately the first vignette I describe is this young woman, Roya, She's a high school student in Northern California and she's describing to me the kind of conundrum she's faced with when like all other young people who want to apply to four year colleges, she has a bunch of different forms that she has to fill out where she is sort of self-identifying within the given ethnic and racial categories that are offered on these forms. And she describes um, how, you know, when she tries to claim, an identity apart from white, as an Iranian person, that she's gotten pushback from authority figures and teachers who explain to her, no, 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 you know, the right box you need to be checking is white. And so Roya, to me, not to her teachers, but to me in this in this smaller setting sort of says, you know, what other countries have been vilified, sanctioned, exploited the way that Iran is today? How could I be white when I'm profiled at the airport? I'm not white, uh, so immediately, you know, I wanted to offer the reader a glimpse into the the kinds of um, the kinds of thoughts that are going through the minds of the young people in my book. But I also wanted to kind of um, zoom back out and talk about you know, examples of why it would be that a young person like Roya would have that reaction, right? And so, um, like you said, Sarah, I focus in on a particular piece of American memorabilia that's at a restaurant, um, you know, about 50 miles or so west of Houston, Texas, It's a barbecue restaurant where, since 1979, there's been a poster on the wall um, that is a staged photograph. It's like sepia-toned. There's old Western font at the bottom of this photograph, and it shows 19 rifle-wielding cowboys posed around an old oak tree. Behind them are the flag of the United States, the flag of the state of Canada, and the body of what's meant to be a limp lifeless man wearing a robe and a turban. And underneath this photograph there's this caption and it says let's play cowboys and Iranians. And so um, I use this vignette not just to sort of Talk about, hey, like these are the images that young people like Roya, right, sort of have to make sense of. But to also say that more broadly, when we're thinking about groups from the Middle East or Iranians specifically within American sociology, um, we typically integrate or make sense of their experiences as what I call anything but race. You know, we've used a kind of ethnic bigotry analytic or an Islamophobia analytic or uh, one that has to do with anti-immigrant nativism to make sense of why a poster like that would exist. But I say that if we only use those lenses to unpack the poster, then we're missing, for example, the central reference to white vigilantism and the lynching of African Americans. We're missing the cowboys and Indians trope and the way that it's you know, amalgamating Iranianness with indigeneity. And so um, it's really a, an urge for us to rethink how race, racism and whiteness is part of the story of the integration and exclusion in many cases of these groups from American society.
0: Um, I really like how um, there in the first chapter, you use this, you have this sentence that I want to <laughs> repeat, which is uh, that they're caught in the chasm between formal ethno-racial invisibility and informal hypervisibility. And I just thought that that was a really good way of um, talking about it. And so I was wondering if you could also elaborate on these two terms you use in your book, racial, racial hinges and racial loopholes a little bit more to sort of help the reader. Yeah, you know, Sarah, that's actually
1: the sentence that you read might be one of the very first sentences I ever wrote, I think, of oh, wow. <laughs> this book. Mm-hmm. So I should also say as a side note, um, you know, this is a bit of like behind the scenes about how the book came to be. But, um, you know, in the kind of market pressures that we all face as early career faculty, when we're, you know, on the job market, like, there's such a push to have published work on our Vita. And so um, something kind of I think it felt a little quirky at the time, but I think is becoming much more typical is that um, at UC Santa Barbara, we were sort of slowly, when I was coming up in the program, moving to more of a three page or sorry a three paper model um, where you would sort of carve off smaller pieces of your project, try to publish peer review articles so that you would have something on your CV when you went on the market. you'd sort of tack on an intro and a conclusion. And that was your dissertation, Uh, and what that meant, I think, for like a micro generation of us, is that we did, you know, in in some cases, knock on wood, eventually get jobs. But you also sort of landed at your new institution, and you were like, okay, rather than revise a dissertation into a book, I'm sort of sitting here, like writing the book, right? (laughs) That I should have written as the dissertation, Uh, and so. When you, you read that sentence out, um, it was nice to hear you say that because that was something that I remember like writing from scratch when we first arrived in Toronto and I was starting this job and I was sort of like, you know, what is it that I'm exactly trying to say? What does all of these years of study in graduate school, like, what was it all about, and what what are the major findings? So uh, I appreciate that you zoomed in on that because yeah, that, I, I just re- I, like was- remember that moment in my career. Yeah.
0: That's really cool because, yeah, it just like stuck out, like, yeah, this is it, you know, like, period. (laughs) So thanks for that. Okay, so, um, yeah, that is really like the departure for them, these
1: two concepts that I elaborate on a little bit more in chapter two of the book. So, more broadly, chapter two is my attempt to reconstruct kind of a capsule history of Iranians in the United States. Um, this is because it was increasingly clear to me as I was drafting the substantive chapters that followed that like there needed to be, you know, quite a bit of background that was offered both about sort of the geopolitics between Iran and the United States. Um, when these sort of first migrant waves came over, just all kinds of stuff that I felt like, you know, um, I sort of, I need to give this to the reader because this is, all of the important context that then helps, you know, the rest of the data kind of make sense in the later chapters. So um, in the first part, I really look uh, quite closely at what I said was kind of the initial motivation for the project when I was an undergrad, which was the history of racial prerequisite cases in the United States, those cases where immigrants went to court to, um, you know, have adjudication about whether or not they qualified as white and could therefore become citizens. And so um, a really understudied feature of these cases, which um, have been written about, you know, to a great extent, um, the kind of core citation here is Ian Haney Lopez, white by law, but even sort of more specifically, there has been stuff written about the case of Arab Americans, um, Armenian Americans, South Asian Americans, so sort of all these groups that geographically are around the country of Iran. But actually, when you go into the archive, there are no cases that you can identify where the person in court, the actual claimant, himself is an Iranian person. And yet, once I started to dig further, I saw that actually references to Persians, to Persia, to Iran, to Iranians, actually were kind of littered through the margins of these cases. So these cases had been written about before, but there hadn't been somebody sort of connecting the threads to say, oh, okay, when an Arab goes to court in 1925 or an Armenian goes to court in 1925, part of what they're doing is um, bringing evidence, like sort of social and this sort of pseudoscientific biological evidence of why they should be considered white, but also they're constructing an other in the courtroom too. And in those situations, Iranians became a reference Category in these court proceedings. But by the same token, I found that in the cases featuring South Asian claimants, that they would go to court. So unlike the Arabs and the Armenians, who would go and they would say, you know, we're the white people from the Middle East, you know, we're Christian. Because at that point in their immigration history, it was many Christians from that region coming to the United States. So they typically go to court and they'd say, you know, we're Christian. For this and for that are the reason You should consider us as oriented Toward Europe and therefore white If you really want to look at who the brown People are in our part of the world Look at those Iranians, right? They're Muslim or they're Zoroastrian Um, They have all of these sort of different features In their background They're dark skin They are the ones that are not white uh, But we are the white ones And so what I found was when the claimant was South Asian So somebody coming from the Indian subcontinent You know, 50, 100 years ago they were going to court and they were sort of using iranians in the exact opposite way as arabs and armenians did so very typically and this goes all the way through bagat singh Thind, which is like the seminal case about south asians race uh, in the racial prerequisite cases but also in sort of lesser cases too um claimants would go to court and they would say you know I might be from India, but my people come from Iran. They were originally part of an 8th century migration of Parsi people out of Persia to India. And so actually my ancestral roots are in Iran. Iran comes from the word Aryan. They have a Caucasian background. And so therefore I may be Indian, but I'm a displaced Iranian, which makes me white. And so it's for me that making that connection, which was like, you know, pretty sort of late in the course of writing my book, this like blew my mind that, um, Iranians, sort of like the way that I was conceptualizing them as, you know, both legally white but extra legally white and sort of having this in-between status, you know, I went into the archive and I found evidence that that was also true 100 years ago before they even had arrived as immigrants themselves to U.S. shores. And so um, I kind of was trying to make sense of how could they be white in some of the cases and not white in some of the cases. And the judges, by the way, kept flip-flopping too, the way that they were interpreting this evidence about Iranians, uh, they sort of i have a table in there. I think it's table, table two that sort of shows like judges did not have um, a lot of clarity to offer on this anyway. And so I thought, you know, what is a concept that kind of, grasps at that. And so I came up with what I call racial hinges. And I say that in these cases, Iranians are a racial hinge. You know, people would use them to serve whatever purposes they needed in court. And it makes a lot of sense, but they kind of swung the door would open or close to whiteness as needed for, you know, these other liminally raced claimants. Um, so that's where that concept came from. Um, and then it was important to me to also, draw on the same kinds of legal evidence, but bring the timeline closer to the present day. And so again, at some point when I'm like trying to write this behemoth chapter, which is titled in the past, where I'm just trying to summarize sort of, you know, Iranian American history. Um, at some point I realized, okay, I need to start keeping files. Because there are a ton of different like employment discrimination or housing discrimination cases that feature Iranian Americans and these are you know from the last 30 or so years. Um, but there yet there still hasn't really been like at that point this seminal article that was pulling all of these cases together and kind of theorizing about them. And so this was me just sort of like noticing that there are these cases, but they weren't yet, called racial discrimination, or there wasn't a kind of shape that was given to them. And so um, once I had a bunch of these cases, then I started to read what was happening to um, to plaintiffs to claimants in court who would go as an Iranian person. And they'd say, you know, my manager is withholding tips. They're giving me terrible shifts. I suspect that this is about my identity. I think that it's racism. I saw that the way that that case moved through court was really weird. Sometimes it was like um, it was really hard to kind of uh, predict what would happen. And many times this actually had to do with the kind of in-between status of Iranians. Are they a racial minority? Are they a white person? Was the plaintiff sort of accurately identifying what that mechanism for the discrimination was, right? Was it national bias? Was it racial bias? Was it ethnic bias? And so I realized that when you have a legacy of being a racial hinge in the United States, I say, you're at risk of falling into what I then call in the chapter, racial loopholes. So this is where I say that, you know, um, in these cases featuring like Employment discrimination or housing discrimination, um, Iranians are at risk because they are legally considered white, and so when the people sort of that are that are harming them in these. Uh, settings are also white people typically like white european americans Um, technically the court can't make sense of white on white crime and so this is like sort of the first level of problems Um, but then secondly you know when iranians are are legally thought of as white but um you know do not but they have these experiences that are much more consistent with what communities of color are facing in these settings, then um, they risk not having sort of the strongest arm of the law um, supporting them in these situations, which historically in the context of the United States has been, you know, around the civil rights era sort of gains that, you know, racial groups have, have gotten by virtue of becoming sort of these pan ethnic groups that would agitate for, you know, sort of racial recognition and these sorts of things. And so I have this concept called racial loopholes, where I say that, you know, um, they're, they're too white to get legal redress in court, but they're not white enough to actually escape this sort of on the ground, um, you know, exclusion or discrimination.
0: So we'll go ahead and get started on sort of the interviews that you did with the youth and you start at home. And I thought one of the really interesting things that kept coming up in this chapter was sort of the ambivalence of the second generation and how, for instance, there's one girl who says that society keeps reminding her basically about her past and who she is and whether she's white or not. And so I was hoping you could sort of talk about how there are those generational differences and how this sort of plays out at home. Yeah, thanks. So, you know,
1: once I have this, like, <clears throat> big, big chapter two behind me where I'm trying to summarize Iranian American history, then I can dig into the the data that I had collected with young people. And so in chapter three, I start in the childhood home. And this is kind of describing to young or having young people describe to me, like, um, you know, what were you told by your parents that you are? Um, what were those conversations like? What were the silences about? You know, and so, um, what's interesting is like part of the background of what you know, relatively little sociology or social science research that there is on Iranians has typically focused on things like, um, you know, high levels of human capital that Iranians brought with them to the United States. It's focused in some cases on their ability to quote unquote pass as white, right? So different kinds of practices like, um, you know, perhaps changing your name, um, uh, claiming to be from a different place, like, let's say, you know, Italy or Greece, um, which in the literature, it says that some first generation immigrants, so the parents of the young people in my book, you know, there's this claim that like in the 1980s, and in the 90s, this was a thing that Iranians did in the United States. And so um, the quote that you read from the young woman in chapter three, I think really gets at this issue that was predominant through my interviews with these young people, which was that they felt that like, um, they they not only did not want to participate in these sorts of pra- uh, these passing practices, right? Of like changing Mohammed to Mo, or you know, um, putting in color contact lenses. Like anecdotally, we've heard that Persians or Iranians have done in the past. They would say to me, like that is also futile. That like it's you know, young people are kind of like. Um, uh, either making funny comments or straight up bullying me. And, you know, as much as like, even in my darkest days, I wanted to be white or I wanted to, you know, sort of turn away from my Iranian-ness that society keeps reminding me. My, my context keeps reminding me. And so I wanted to really push back at what I think has been like, fairly thin and anecdotal evidence of Iranian people either successfully passing or even wanting to pass and to sort of suggest that, um, you know, even though first generation parents show up in my book, they're not really like the the population that's very rigorously understudied. But to say that among the second generation, this does not seem to be the case.
0: Yeah. And there were three recurring conflicts that you picked up in this chapter. so you know, sort of the historical synonymy, I can never say that word, between Aryans and Iranians, Um, what traits might be considered unique, and then also the Persian exceptionalism. Man, I can't say that word either. Um, But yeah, so I was hoping you could sort of touch on those really quickly too.
1: Part of the important background that has to be part of the conversation when we're talking about Iranians specifically um, is that immigrants from Iran to the United States also come with a very uh, sort of socialized uh, sense of their own unique claim to a white identity, which is what we call the Aryan myth. And so and this is a thing that, you know, 100 years ago in the nation-building projects uh, of the Pahlavi regime was a narrative that was built into the history textbooks that, um, you know, young people were reading through, like, mass schooling. And this was, like, a very... Um, Concrete political project, which was meant to kind of smooth over certain territorial losses or like a loss of face, sort of more broadly in international relations. And it was the government sort of linking up with different intellectuals um, to kind of like salvage certain parts of Iranian history and to sort of re narrate them as this thing that um, somehow, you know, separated it from the Arab world, uh, made connections to the racial side that was coming out of Europe and a sort of Eurocentric view on the world, and so um, there was a lot of trickery as well with the word Iran itself, and you know, scholars kind of doing this work that has now been debunked, where they were saying, you know, Iran comes from the word Aryan, Um, and they sort of looked at ancient Sanskrit and these sorts of things, but um, if people are interested in this history, there's a really phenomenal book by a colleague named Reza Zia Ebrahimi, who's a historian based in the UK. His book about dislocation and the Aryan myth came out in 2016 from Columbia University Press. And so he really delves into this background and debunks so much of this Aryan myth. But that's really like in the background of um, the story of these second-generation kids. Because, for example, you know, they would come home after being bullied in school and they would say to their parents, like, what should I do? I'm being bullied. And they would share with me that sometimes their mom or dad would say, you know, you just go right back to school and tell them, no, you're Aryan. You're one of the original white people of the world. And these young people would say to me, you know, like, That that word makes no sense. In the United States, the word Aryan means neo-Nazi, and it means KKK. And how could I possibly, you know, like have a positive sense of ID if that's, you know, like the context that we're using the word in here and how problematic is that? And so um, this is sort of lurking in the shadows of the story of, you know, Iranian racial identity in the United States is that, and the immigrants are sort of bringing with them, right? This highly problematic white supremacist um, sort of myth about their own racial ID. Um, and more broadly, you know, Iranian exceptionalism or Persian exceptionalism is the idea that, like, um, both in the region and in the world, that, like, Iran, and it's true, right? Was like an extremely ancient civilization, many different kinds of, um, you know, advances in, like, mathematics and medicine and engineering. In the arts, um, that these you know came out of like a a moment when that was an empire that was really flourishing. But in chapter three, I also talk about how that becomes a kind of a band aid to salvage, you know, or soothe wounds um, that are very present, sort of in twenty, you know, in a more twenty tens kind of a moment in the United States, and how for young people. Uh, It is like quite dissatisfying when um, they see all of these contemporary images of Iran that are quite stigmatized and negative, um, where it's sort of, you know, creating a monster out of that country. And then um, they go back to the community or to their home uh, and what's being offered to them. Right. Or these sort of achievements of like many, many centuries ago. And um, this this can be a source of pride and strength but it's not enough and then in some cases it can really serve to um i think create like a superiority complex that's actually uh very dangerous and it gets in the way of building solidarities with for example Arab Americans and other groups right that like through Persian exceptionalism this group has historically thought they're better than or superior to but that they actually need to really work closely with in the context of diaspora
0: so I think that sort of leads into, you know, sort of the issues that you bring up once you switch over to talking about these youth in school. And one of the things that I was really struck by is this, you know, they're habitually racialized as non-white and bullied for being so. And there's this uh story that you share in the book that that really stuck with me, and it's about a kid that was being bullied for being Iranian, and then he gets detention. Like I yeah, so I just wondered if you could talk more about the youth's experience in school. Yeah, so
1: the uh, anecdote that you're describing it comes kind of in the middle of the chapter, and it's this young man Amir, and he's talking about how his older brother Shahram, when they first moved to a new city, it was like a small town in the midwestern U.S., um, he was the subject of um, like a pretty serious assault in the cafeteria and that it was like a team of football players um, surrounded his table, and he was sitting with two other racialized youth that he had sort of quickly become friends with in the context of this high school, and that the football players surrounded them um, and were chanting, fight, 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 and there were these, again, deeply racialized slurs being thrown at the young man. So this is where I say, you know, that anything but race— kind of approach to understanding Iranian lives is not enough because he's being called the n-word camel jockey you know things that have these really destructive Distinguishable ties to macro-level racial projects like racism and colonialism, and so um, in this in this entire environment of like you know Shahram Amir's older brother um, experiencing this bullying and there's almost a fight and the security guard breaks it up and then you know takes him to assistant principal in charge of discipline. That it turns out that you know not only where the football player is not going to be touched by the administration and nothing would happen to them, but that Shahram gets sent to detention for, you know, sort of disturbing the peace of the school during, you know, this lunch break and that the, Mrs. In principal thinks I think she's doing him a favor and offering some advice about this new environment where he's going to school. And she says, you know, like you're in a place now where your peers have a lot of friends and family that are serving in the military, and that this was happening right on the heels of the war with Iraq and uh, George W. Bush's announcement about this. And so she says, you know, you need to be really careful about um, sort of the way that people are very sensitive to this now in this environment. And so, um, you know, this was, of course, to me, like, absolutely shocking, but unfortunately not surprising, although it was a really evocative Um, vignette to to include in the book, there were different examples of this that other young people in other, you know, corners of the United States shared. Um, What was particularly interesting about this case to me though, was that um, I was actually able to find evidence in the public record that corroborated this young man's story. And so um, this was a thing that, you know, not only did the assistant principal feel very comfortable sort of, you know, saying to the young man, like, uh, you got to watch your Iranian identity, you don't know what that's going to trigger here at your new school, that like, she gave a statement to that effect to the local paper that this was written about as a thing. And it wasn't written about as if it was not problematic. But this was like an open conversation that was happening. Um And so to me, that really merited inclusion, because it just it just so beautifully kind of captured all the different pieces of this this experience young people were having in schools.
0: Uh, One of the other things that you bring up in chapter four, but also in an appendix, because I'm a nerd and I read your appendixes too, um, is sort of this demographic group definition for the students. So you talked about it earlier with Roya and applying to college. But you know, like, how, how do they get categorized? And you know, when the census comes around, is that category going to be in there? Or is it not? Um, And so just sort of thinking from a demographic perspective, like how these students sort of perceive themselves or what box they check For instance
1: You know You're always looking As a sociologist I think We're we're interested In problems But we also Are excited When we see You know Potential solutions Or like gestures To uh, Kind of You know Like certain outcomes, right? The the get at the issue between agency and structure and how like ordinary people can, you know, make difference. Um, and so uh, in that chapter, toward the end, like I talk about um, this successful campaign in the University of California system, where, you know, something like 26 different student groups representing sort of all of the different ethno-national groups you would think of um as you know uh, being from the broad middle east so like the armenian student group and the iranian student group and the arab student group and even between that right the the lebanese group and then this and then that, that that they came together and agitated for um another box apart from the white racial category that sort of sits next to you know all of them so white latino asian um Black, uh, Native, Indigenous, um, which is called Swana. Swana refers to Southwest Asia and North Africa. So again, there was this like emphasis on not talking about it as the Middle East because that's the kind of um, you know language that was exported from Europe and it's a very Orientalist kind of a way to think of that part of the world and so they they all came together under the banner of SWANA and actually successfully got the University of California to break them out of the white box, which is something that activists have been trying to do more broadly in national politics, you know, at least since the 90s and there's evidence of this before, you know, that like every Every year, um, different advocacy organizations on the national level, you know, work with the census and urge the census, right, to continue testing a category for this community of people. And uh, in terms of what the census is calling it, they refer to it as MENA, Middle East and North African. And so, um, you know, the Census Bureau diligently tests it like every five years to see if that's a category that makes sense uh, for inclusion. And right now, the recommendation is sort of um, preliminarily that uh, in looking toward the 2020 census that they, you know, strongly consider, including a MENA box apart from white for the very first time. Um, And yet, you know, there's been a lot of upheaval, as you know, at the census, um, Soon after Trump's appointment, um, the head of the census stepped down. Um, All of the federal agencies and bureaus right now are in a state of defunding, and so um, it remains to be seen how that's going to play out in 2020. But it was really inspiring, right, to see this group of young people um, get that change pushed through at the UC. And what that actually means is not just a kind of formal recognition, which perhaps like aligns more closely, sort of, to the social psychological way in which like these young people see themselves and other people see them, but also it means that the university can keep better numbers, right, on, like, how how this community is moving through its degree programs, um, what sort of, you know, uh, representation looks like among the faculty and the staff and these sorts of measures that are really important for us to have data about regarding equity and diversity. And so um, this was a really big win, and I think uh, in some ways it, it's a bit of a how-to or a kind of optimistic um, play-by-play about, you know, what would that look like if, second-generation kids sort of took the reins and as they grow up, right, are able to uh, translate some of this stuff into real policy change.
0: Great. Yeah, I I just really liked that example from that chapter. So moving on to the chapter about uh, that's titled To the Homeland. Here, um, you bring up the issues that the youth experienced when they traveled um, abroad, and specifically the dual citizenship or dual passports, I thought was an interesting sort of aspect that became an became an issue, but also you refer to some of the body work that they do um, in America, but then when they travel to Iran, so I was hoping you could talk more about that
1: in that chapter, I am conceptually leaving the United States and thinking about what does it mean to be an iranian American body in motion, and so um you know, I'm, I'm thinking of the end goal, the destination here as being like the ancestral homeland, Iran, which most of the young people in my study um, had visited at one point in their life. And for some of them, um, this was like a annual every year summer trip that they would take with family. Um, and I describe for like a reader that has no prior knowledge of this, that, you know, with the end of diplomatic relations uh, following the Iranian revolution and the hostage crisis, uh, the end of diplomatic relations between the United States and Iran, um, you cannot fly to Iran on an American passport. There are no direct flights out of an American airport there. And so what this requires is that young people have to travel with two passports. They need their American passport to get them to wherever the layover is, right? Because there's no direct flights. Um, And they use that passport to get to places like Dubai, Frankfurt, London, Um, and then they swap their passports, and they're using um, an Iranian passport, which they uh, are entitled to through their parentage, so their parents would apply for it, and they would get it for their children, and so, um, you know, this is like a, it's both a real thing, and it's also a really powerful metaphor, I think, for um, this bifurcated life that young people felt, where just to be able to go, quote-unquote, home, they needed two separate sets of documentation and they had a, you know, American passport, that not only meant nothing in Iran, but was kind of a net negative, and then, you know, vice versa, where the Iranian passport, you know, just meant sort of getting attention for all the wrong reasons in the US. Um, and then with regard to the kind of body work or, you know, presentation of self that young people had to do, um, I am not, you know, um, like a person who considers herself a scholar of the body or of gender, although, like, those are, subfields in sociology that I try to keep up with I find them like so important and fascinating. Um, so despite the fact that I'm not situated you know in that subfield, essentially as I think of myself as somebody who studies race and ethnicity as immigration, it was totally impossible to make sense of young people's stories without bringing a lens that was about gender or the body when we're talking about international travel. So you know I think we are like very used to thinking about how women's bodies you know uh, from time immemorial are you know surveilled and how women have to make these really conscientious choices about how they manage their body about you know how they're being perceived and that they're very savvy at you know making certain choices and that women just sort of have to be that way girls and women um what i found in this particular case was that um you know It was young men, Iranian-American young men and boys who in airports on their way to Iran, right, felt a lot more acute sort of surveillance and spoke in much more detail about the kind of bodily management practices that they would undergo uh, as they would get ready for travel, right? Like sort of this emphasis on I have to shave my facial hair so closely and I want to wear a sweatshirt with the name of a university on it so that they know, right, I'm based in America, I'm not, you know, sort of like uh, this quote unquote terrorist that they want to make me out to be. Um, And that for women, you know, this was a sort of inversion of the more kind of normative typical thing that they moved somewhat easier through these airports, or at least cognitively, it was taking up kind of less real estate in their brains, right? How to make the right choices to get from point A to point B. But then, You know, once they enter Iran, it's a totally new equation there because uh, there are certain, both like sort of informal and formal rules about hijab. And so, um, young women who, for the most part, were not covering their hair in the United States, you know, had this experience where. Um, they were, you know, really having to think about things like managing their body and they would sort of, in many cases, the young women describe sort of overcorrecting, right, so that they would show up in Iran and they would be like tugging on their hijab and keeping it so closely sort of all over their hair that they would say like, I was sort of exposed for how you know, rigorous or orthodox, I kept my hijab and I get there and it's like, you know, the young women who are Iranian who live there all the time, like they manage the rules much better and they're more flexible and they're good at it, you know, and they just, they would constantly frame it as a kind of failure. They were failing at performing being Iranian. Uh, and so, um, and this was a, this was a really important feature, I think of these young people's story that I needed to capture. Right. Was that like, um, they may feel, They may share certain experiences or patterns of racialization in the U.S., but that calculation really can change through the act of international travel and then also once they get to their destination.
0: So then you move into chapter six, where a lot of these youth go to a summer camp, and I thought it was really this chapter was really interesting because this becomes such a transformative experience for many of them. Like I like the little story that you have from the parents who say, you know, this camp did in fifteen years, or you know, did in a, a summer what we couldn't do in fifteen years for our daughter, and I really sort of liked um, that quote for that. So I was wondering if you could talk more about this. Yeah. So. This camp uh, was started
1: by two second-generation young women about 10 years ago. Um, They met on a study abroad program, and they thought to themselves, you know, like, what is something that we wanted when we were growing up and we were preteens or teenagers? Um, And they thought, you know, a place that was away from the other field sites I've already written about, like, away from the parents and sort of all of the pressures of home, away from peers or authority figures who just don't understand, you know, something that was like situated in the United States, but felt like it was Iranian. So it wasn't even really an issue that got resolved when you would travel to Iran, it would create more questions than answers sometimes when you did this travel to your homeland. And so they created this kind of alternative space, which was the summer camp um, that I describe in chapter six called Camp Ayanda. And Ayanda in Persian means future. And so It's this really cool progressive camp um, where young people are introduced to anti racism and sort of social justice concepts more broadly. They learn a lot about the history of Iran and also Iranian American sort of relations that are not necessarily, you know, tidbits from our uh, checkered past that they're getting in like history textbooks as they're coming up in American public schools or anything like that. And so, you know, this is really a kind of like lies my teacher told me, lies my community <laughs> told me kind of, a um, you know, a, a real counter counterbalance to that stuff. Um, and what's exciting about sort of what's happened in the time since I studied this summer camp, um, which is pretty big like it serves 200 young people a year, it's expanded to have a kind of junior high, preteen component too, Um, is that in the time since I wrote about them um, they have been really active as the organization has matured, as the young people in it have, you know, sort of ascended into their young adulthood um, they have now linked up with major advocacy, advocacy organizations that represent Muslim Americans and Arab Americans and other racialized groups, um, they have actually been at the forefront as the lead plaintiff in one of the most recent cases trying to strike down Donald Trump's third attempt at passing a travel ban. And so uh, just three weeks ago, in a case that was um, heard in a Maryland court and a judge put an injunction on the ban, this was called Eob versus Donald Trump they were the lead plaintiffs and EOV is the organization that these two young women started that runs this camp called Camp I And so for me, it was just one of those moments where it was like, you know, yes, this is absolutely the direction where the summer camp was going to be going. You know, you sort of see this incredibly productive, um, radical kind of organizing that they're doing. So, you know, of course, like several years later down the line, right, you would sort of see them taking on this major role. And so for me, as a sociologist, as somebody who's, who's, you know, grown really fond of like, you know, the young people who I'm describing in these, these field sites, like that was just an amazing thing to be able to witness was the kind of, you know, fruition of all of this small stuff that not, you know, to call people out, but to say like sort of in sociology, when I would say to people, oh yeah, this summer I'm doing some field work at a summer camp, they would sometimes say like, that's very cute, you know, s'mores around the campfire, cool. Um, And so to, to sort of have like a a prologue, you know, if I, if I could add something to the book is to say like, look, 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 you know, the stuff that they were doing there. Yes. It was important for building friendships. Yes. They were, you know, roasting marshmallows around the campfire, but it also, right. Like has these outcomes that um, are just really efficacious and they're, they're really incredible and they deserve to be known.
0: That's really cool. So then here at the end of your book, in your last chapter, you sort of give us a summary, and I hope you'll share your final thoughts. But I was hoping you could sort of start with the chilling personal story that you share at the beginning of the chapter. And then like I said, just go ahead and give us sort of any last thoughts or big pictures that you want us to take away. Like I sort of said at the beginning of our conversation, you know,
1: I was an undergrad. Taking this course with the Condolario, learning about racial prerequisites for the first time, and just having my mind blown. Um, uh, you know, many years later, as I'm sort of still in this universe of like thinking about you know how race has been constructed by courts and socially constructed, you know, I became increasingly aware that some of these cases had originated in Portland, Oregon. Um, But that was kind of just like in the background of my mind. Uh, I was aware of it. And I knew, right, that this was really connected to the history of Oregon as a white supremacist state and these sorts of things. And I am somebody who was born in New York city, but I was raised my whole life in Portland, Oregon. I moved there um, as a, as like a less than one year old with my mom and dad. And I had a little sister who came along uh, as well. And so um, you, know, for me, it was like, oh, okay, fun facts. Like, these cases, some of them began in Portland. Well, that really jives with, you know, sort of what I've learned over time about the history of Oregon as a state and Portland as a city. Um, but it was in the course of, um, you know, really kind of like tapping into one of these cases in particular, and again, reading sort of how Iranians show up in the margins, um, that I look more closely at a case I'd heard about way back in Janetta's class, you know, 15 years ago, which is called uh, Tatos Kartosian versus the United States, or rather flip, United States versus Tatos Kartosian. This is a Armenian immigrant, who again um, went to court and he wanted to become a naturalized citizen, but um, the immigration examiner in Portland um, sort of held his application to the side and said that, you know, let's make a test case out of this because I'm not convinced that Armenians are white. Um, So as this moved through the court, Tatos Kartosian, uh, who was you know a forty something uh, rug store owner who had four children, um, he had to go to court and he had a lawyer. Um, he would present sort of different pieces of evidence um, that were all in support, right, of his application for citizenship and for whiteness, and so. Um, You know, I'm looking through like archives and sort of old documents and I'm looking at an application of Cartosians where he had to fill out his address and I'm looking at it as a resident of Portland and I'm like this address it does not make sense to me. Um, I don't recognize that street. I don't know where this could possibly be, but I grew up there. I should know all the streets in Portland. And so um, I start to do some digging and I realize that, you know, um, a little bit after the time of the Cartosian case, there's this massive fire that ravages Portland and that they um, have to draw a new grid and they rename some of the streets. And so I find the legend where you can sort of type in an old address and up will pop the address of, you know, what that that place sort of reflects now, like what the, the street number and the street name would be. And so I go in there and I type in this old address that Tatos Cartosian has listed on his application. Um, and up pops an address that I am now very familiar with because it is the same corner of this block called the Pittock block in Portland, where my family had a rug store for about 25 years. And so I in this moment, I can still remember it. I'm at the dining room table in my house in Toronto, like just my jaw drops open because I realized not only, you know, did this case begin in Portland, did it feature, you know, um, Cartosian, who in so many ways, I felt like a strong connection to the case, that he had these two daughters that he put on the stand, and I also grew up in Portland as one of two daughters, you know, and in many ways, like, our stories sort of, they overlap, but I really didn't understand to what, ex- to what extent this was until I realized that, um, you know, this same place with a Cartosian family built, you know, their life and these young children were playing on the rug rug floor, you know, rug store floor with their parents uh, during work hours and that kind of stuff. That was where me and my sister were raised, too. And so um, then it was fascinating to be able to go, for example, into the archives of the Oregonian, which is the major newspaper in Portland, and to see, right, images of the store and to just, you know, really think, like, oh my gosh, this is one of those moments where it was like, you know, It was a long, weird, twisted road to get to this book and this project, but like, you know, this was my destiny in some ways. I feel like I had to do this. Um, And so this came like so late in the process of writing the book. And I really wrote these chapters to some extent in chronological order. And so, you know, it's like what, 2016? I think maybe. Yeah. No, maybe May 2015 that I made this discovery as I was like finishing the first draft of this book. And it just, wow. wow, I'll never forget it.
0: Yeah, that's super cool. So thank you again for being here today. I was hoping you could um, tell us what you're working on now. Yeah. um, You know, thank you so much for having me. This is really
1: fun uh, to talk with you. And I appreciate um, all of the really insightful questions that you asked. Um, So the newest project that I'm involved in at University of Toronto is um, a qualitative project uh, where we're working with uh, recent refugees from Syria. Um, This would be like, you know, newcomers that have arrived in Canada since the first big wave, which was November 2015, when Justin Trudeau's uh, administration made a huge kind of commitment to resettling um, the most sort of difficult and uh, urgent cases uh, of you know, Syrians who had fled um, their country and resettling them here in Canada. And so with my colleagues, Melissa Milkey and Ido Peng in the Department of Sociology at U of T, um, we've been doing work with Syrian newcomer moms, assessing their uh, mental health, their issues around settling their children in neighborhoods and schools, and just, you know, trying to... provide both sort of a new lens on some of the dominant frameworks in sociology of mental health and sociology of refugees and immigration and social policy, but also um, that this is something that the government is really, you know, um, wanting kind of some feedback about. And so we we did this project uh, because this was a call from the government that they really wanted to make an investment in social science research and so it's been a lot of fun to like you know bring these women into the project and they have you know uh, uh, like Uh, presented with us at conferences and um, we have you know people from the government who are kind of in consultation with us about these findings and so um, that's been a really neat thing to get into Um, I'm doing another project as well that's taking a more kind of experimental approach to some of these questions that I look at in my book um, about kind of how do we make judgments about What ethnicity or race someone is and sort of where does the rubber hit the road when we're drawing these boundaries in our own mind? And so I'm looking at it outside the case of Iranians just sort of more broadly about boundary making and um, and sort of the rules of race and so this is a cool experimental study that I'm just beginning with the sociologists uh, Renee Flores at University of Washington and the wonderful Ariella Schachter uh, at Washu in st. Louis
0: too so um, those are like the two main things that I'm involved in right now oh that's really cool thank you for telling us about those so thank you again for joining us today and telling us about your book Neda Thank you so much, Sarah. This was a real honor.